Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan Corporate and Investment Bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Anthony Todd, who is co-founder and CEO of hedge fund Aspect Capital. Anthony co-founded Aspect Capital more than 25 years ago, back in 1997. This is part two of our conversation where we really dive into the industry today and what the future may hold. In this episode, we'll hear from Anthony about the relative importance of the data versus the model. I think these days that data is becoming increasingly readily available. Everybody actually has access to the same data sets. So I would answer your question on the basis it's now more about the model. It's how do you actually process that data? It's critical. Use of machine learning in this space. We now have client capital invested across our machine learning models. We've developed a set of 23 different machine learning based models, exploiting a range of different effects. The barriers to entry in this space. I think that the barriers to entry to building a straightforward, rudimentary trend following approach have never been lower. But the barriers to entry to actually build an institutional caliber firm, I think, actually never been higher. And that's why we're not seeing the flood of new entrants that one might expect. So, Anthony, thank you so much for joining me here today. Eloise, great pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Coming to the present now, you've obviously spoken such a lot about the history and the durability of these trend-following techniques and also the sophistication of your methods. But when we think about the present, obviously we're going through this amazing sea change in the industry where availability of data is becoming more and more expansive, use of machine learning techniques, both in the natural language domain and also in the supervised, unsupervised machine learning forecasting. This is all front and centre in terms of what investors are talking about at the very least. Anthony, can you tell me what your views are on both of these topics, really, use of data and also use of more complex models and potentially machine learning models, and if and where you see a space for these within your strategies? Yeah. First of all, focusing on how our models have evolved over time. So if we start there, I think the first thing to say is a fascinating area I talked earlier about our focus on avoiding style drift, that approach of style consistency, which I think has just been so important for us in our 25-year history. And if I look back at the models that we were deploying back in 1998, at that point, what we were trying to do was capitalize on medium-term trend following, capitalize on that herd behavior over a period of two, three months or, or longer in deep liquid markets. You know, that was the philosophy then. That's our philosophy today. So it's completely consistent. To me, it's you know, extraordinary looking at how our models have actually developed over that time. Mm. And I think that's at the heart of your question. If I look at it across, say, kind of four different axes, the input data that we use, we'll talk more about input data in a moment, the actual models themselves, technology, the processing power that we're able to deploy or run our models, and then fourthly, the range of markets. And if you look at it through those four lenses, those are the areas each individual areas just come on just leaps and bounds over the course of the last 25 years. Wow. So we'll talk about the data in a moment, but the data we were using actually back 25 years ago was just pure and simply daily data, daily price data. The range of different sources of data we use today is magnified 
you know, many, many, many times. The models that we use in terms of pure trend following models, we're using significantly more sophisticated techniques today than we were 25 years ago, and have then augmented those techniques with a whole range of different models. You know, in the Aspect Diversify program, we've developed a very strong, very powerful set of orthogonal modulating strategies which are designed to actually capture other persistent drives of market behavior beyond trend, such as carry, such as relative carry, cross-sectional momentum, sentiment, value, relative value, a number of technical factors, all designed to be orthogonal trend following, to provide returns yes. You know, at the point where trend following actually might not be effective. Processing power used to be a limiting factor. So, and actually, if we go right way back to when I joined AHL back in 1992, we would be taking daily data from the markets and it would take our technology overnight to actually kind of run the models. Yeah. The models would actually then generate signals and generate compositions first thing the next day. Now, if you actually look in terms of processing power, we're actually able to do an increasing amount of work on AWS in the cloud. Yes. And suddenly processing power actually no longer becomes a limiting factor. So as the markets we trade, that's immeasurably different. When we started trading here at Aspect in 1998, we were trading around a 75 market portfolio. Today in the Aspect Diversified program, we're trading over 190 different markets. So the range of different markets has you know, evolved significantly. So I think that to me has just been the exciting development of our models. We've retained that consistency of approach. We've retained that consistent philosophy but in terms of the data, the models, the processing power, the markets we trade, you know, what we're doing today is night and day different from, from what we were doing 25 years ago. Thank you so much for articulating that and incredible to hear about all of the progress you've made on those four different pillars. And it's really interesting to me that you also have this set of orthogonal factors capitalizing on different sources of persistent alpha in markets, sentiment value, carry, etc. I can understand that they are very different to the trend and therefore they provide this natural diversification. Do you have a view on which one has better alpha or better sharp over time? Or is it simply a case that it's just important to have both? It's more the latter, Eloise. It's more important to actually have that combination. Mm. So these other persistent effects we've looked to capture, I say in some respects, they are analogous to trend following insofar as what we've tried to identify is these other persistent drivers of market behavior, which are applicable across multiple kind of markets, often across multiple frequencies, and again, just represent small statistical inefficiencies in the markets. Mm -hmm. But again, combined across multiple markets, applied in a very strong risk management framework and used in conjunction with trend can provide very valuable source of return. We saw that in particular during the fourth quarter last year, having seen strongly trending markets in the first, well, particularly during the first two quarters of last year, as said, against the backdrop of sticky inflation and geopolitical crisis. Suddenly in the fourth quarter, we saw sharp inflection points in a number of markets, and we actually saw a very different set of market conditions. That was a challenging time for trend following, but actually our modulating factors were able to capture those different effects in the markets and generate strong, diversifying returns. Fantastic. And just sticking with the present and the market environment, you referred at the beginning to the late 70s and the 80s, a period of high inflation, very high interest rates, volatile energy prices. And you referred to the fact that this was a brilliant time for trend following factors. And it's very natural when we hear you talk about that to think, well, some of this resonates with today. And of course, you mentioned that 2022, for example, was a very strong year for trend following strategies as a whole. So how do you feel about the alpha generating capacity of these different strategies in today's environment? 
I mean, the first thing, Eloise, to say is that at Aspect, we're not economists. We're not making predictions about the markets. And we don't adjust our models depending on the market environment. The whole mm. aim of our programs is to generate those strongly diversifying returns irrespective of the market environment. Now, it is interesting looking at the outlook for markets today. And to me, you know, if we look at the outlook over the course of the next five or 10 years, it's very different from what we've seen over the last 40 years. Now, over the last 40 years, we've seen this up until last year, you know, this remarkable bull market in stocks, this remarkable bull market in bonds, the 60-40 portfolio, which has been the bedrock of, yes. of many investors' portfolios, has generated remarkable returns with only a couple of brief interruptions. And there were strong tailwinds actually driving those returns, very benign levels of inflation, declining interest rates, calmness on the geopolitical front, emergence of technology, emergence of major trading blocks, China's admittance to the WTO. Effects such as this, one can understand why it's been such a strong period for stocks and bonds. But the environment now, the music has stopped. We're now in a totally different environment. We're in a very febrile, unpredictable environment. Sticky inflation, a retreat from globalization, a retreat from quantitative easing, inflationary pressures, higher interest rates. To me, the environment over the course of the next five or 10 years is going to be totally different from the last 40. So that, in terms of the outlook for our programs, it's not our job to predict whether we're going to see a soft landing in the markets or yeah. a hard landing in the markets or no landing in the markets or in the global economy. But we can actually see that in terms of the performance, particularly of, I would say, our medium-term trend-following strategies, if we look back at other periods where we have seen a hard landing, you actually go back to the 1970s, 1980s. If you look at the potential for a soft landing, which is what a lot of commentators are pointing to today. That has very strong similarities with what we saw in 1994, 1995, when 1994, the Fed was ahead of the curve, actually put up interest rates extremely aggressively. We saw a bond market crisis in 1994, but then actually that led to very benign economic conditions and a very benign market environment during the period from 1995 through come 1999. Now, if we look at the performance of trend-following strategies you know, over that period, 1995 to 1999, because we saw strongly you know, rallying stock markets, some very, very strong returns from the currency sector and the bond sector, again, we saw very strong returns there as well. And I think that's one of the advantages of a trend-following approach, is we are agnostic about whether markets are rising or falling. There is no bias in our signals. You know, what we need, what we thrive on is that herd behavior. It's that herd behavior driving strong trends, driving strong momentum. And certainly looking back at the history of managed futures, we can see that whether it's soft landing, hard landing, or no landing, managed futures or trend following has proven its ability to be able to perform in a broad range of different outcomes. Great. And I always ask this question, the data versus the model. You've obviously made vast improvements and progress and sophistication to both the number of data sets you're ingesting and also the sophistication of those models. But if you had to pick one, very difficult question, what would you say is the more important for the generation of your alpha strategies? Eloise, it's interesting. You, know, you mentioned you're going to ask this question, so I actually asked a number of our researchers exactly oh, this question you. and actually just got a complete split, complete division in terms of responses. You know, some were very firmly, it's all about the model. Others were very firm in the camp. It's actually all about the data. So I think it's a very difficult question to answer. From our perspective, I think we'd actually look at it on the basis that the data, the main groups of data we're looking for, you can actually group it into four different headings. One is just you know, simply price data. Second is economic data. So for instance, GDP data, inflation data, it could be PMI survey type data. 
You can look at option-derived data. So, for instance, looking, trying to identify you know, volatility as implied by the option markets. And then the fourth is alternative data. And it's alternative data where I think there've been the strongest advances over the course of the last you know, five years. So use yes. of data such as natural language processing, such as sentiment data, such as fund flow data, such as weather data, and such as shipping data. So just this plethora of different sources of data. In answer to your question, I think these days that data is becoming increasingly readily available. Everybody actually has access to the same data sets. So I would answer your question on the basis it's now more about the model. It's how do you actually process that data is kind of critical. What models are you going to use? Are you going to apply a machine learning type approach? If so, what type of machine learning models might you apply? You're going to apply a trend following approach. You're going to try to apply a linear aggression type of approach. And I think it's actually how you deploy those models, how you interpret that data. And again, something we haven't talked about so far we always at Aspect talk about our research process as being hypothesis-driven. But mm. before we undertake any piece of research, we're very clear about exactly what is the effect, what's the driver of market behavior we're trying to capitalize on. And that, again, is going to be the driver of what type of model am I actually aiming to build? So long answer to your question, but I think, and very finely balanced, but to me, yes. it actually comes down to the model by a small margin, yes. the model rather than the data. That's so interesting. First of all, I love your relatively unbiased approach, the fact that you surveyed your <laughs> surveyed your researchers rather than coming up with your own specific view on that. And second of all, I think that makes you slightly unique because I would say on the whole, we tend to hear that investors see data as the more important than the model. So a different perspective coming from you. And my final sort of follow-up question on this is you referred to machine learning. You also referred to being hypothesis-led in everything you do. How do you marry the two? Because not all machine learning strategies are hypothesis-led. It's worth talking about our approach to machine learning. It's been an area of strong investment for us actually over a number of years. We have set up small teams to start with two goals. I mean, first of all, to develop a range of diversifying systematic models using machine learning techniques. And we set that team up five years ago. The second goal was as a resource to actually enable any research team across the company to be able to harness machine learning in their approach. So yes. we didn't just want it as a standalone team. We wanted you know, machine learning to become another tool set to be used by any team in the company. So now we have a four-year track record of trading live capital. We started with trading proprietary capital. We now have client capital invested across our machine learning models. We've developed a set of 23 different machine learning-based models, exploiting a range of different effects across the seven sectors that we're trading. So diversified in terms of the behavior we're actually trying to capture and also diversified in terms of market. Your question you know, about how we actually marry that with hypothesis is important our approach is a constrained and supervised approach to machine learning. It's not an approach where we've just simply thrown a range of machine learning models at a whole raft of data and then trust the result. It's constrained, very clear on the effects we're trying to capture deploying machine learning based models. So what we've tried to do is very much harness that combination of, yes, still it's hypothesis driven. So it's still consistent with that underlying philosophy at aspect, but actually using machine learning in such a way to capture effects which are too diffuse, actually, for other approaches that we might be able to deploy. They're too diffuse for other models, actually, to be able to capture them effectively. Thank you. Well, I was going to ask exactly that, really. What is the benefit? If you're going to be hypothesis-driven, and so you already have a prior assumption and view as to where the relationship lies between certain data sets and certain markets, what is the benefit of using machine learning yep. versus your own derived models? 
I think the first benefit is that the models we've derived are diversified from anything else we do. Yes, you're exploiting hypotheses, but exploiting very different hypotheses. So if we look at the performance of those models, I say we now have a four-year track record, and it's increasingly compelling track record, and those returns are diversified from stocks and bonds and anything else we're doing. That's the key goal. As I mentioned, I think the other big advantage that we can see with machine learning is that when confronted with a broad set of markets with multiple inputs, machine learning can be a highly effective tool to use, You know, which is just, say, a straightforward trend-following approach would just not be able to capture the effects we're actually looking for. Yes. So machine learning is just a different tool set and able to capture those diffuse effects more successfully. Yes. And by diffuse, do you mean multidimensional? Multidimensional. I think that's a good way of looking yes. at it. Yes. So you've covered so many of the benefits of what you're doing both around the philosophy and the rationale of your trend-following techniques, but also around the methods in which you diversify those strategies with others, whether it's across alternative markets or across alternative data sets. Could we turn now to the challenges? Where are the periods where it's tougher to find alpha? And what are the concerns or criticisms that you hear from end investors and allocators? And, and what's your response to those? I mean, I think we only have to look back in the last 10 years to, you know, to see, to see you yes. know, exactly that in action. As I mentioned, that period, maybe 2009 through 2019, with the notable exception of 2014, where 2014, we saw a collapse in energy prices. We saw a strong rally in fixed income markets. So 2014 was a very strong year for managed futures. But with the exception of 2014, we saw a, pretty much a 10-year period of very challenging market conditions. Why was that? One could look at trend following and identify really two types of market environment that create challenges. Market environment number one is actually what you referred to a little bit earlier, Eloise, is when you actually see a very sharp reversal. You were using the expression that the herd's got it wrong. So you see a sudden inflection point. So at a sudden inflection point, you know, again, that's going to be a challenging market environment because the market's actually effectively going against the prevailing trend. That's exactly what we saw, for instance, in 2009. Exactly. March 2009. March 2009. Yeah. March 2009. You know, remember it well. When we actually suddenly saw that dramatic level of easing and those huge rescue packages announced by the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England and the ECB, multiple central banks around the world, you suddenly saw that huge injection of liquidity and stock markets just took off like a rocket. That yes. inflection point, that's going to be a challenging time. The other challenging time for trend following is when markets are range bound, when there are no trends. And so a trend following approach is constantly hunting for that herd behavior, but the herd behavior is absent. That happened across multiple markets during the course of that period. Now, why? Why did that happen? More with the benefit of hindsight, it certainly wasn't obvious at the time, but I think in an environment where you do have quantitative easing, you have government intervention, and that deadens the ability for markets to actually trend freely because you've got that weight of government intervention yes. um, actually limiting the ability for markets to trend. That's factor number one. I think factor number two is in a zero or negative interest rate environment. We've got strong convergence of global economic outlook, global economic conditions, and therefore central bank policies. Then you've actually got alignment of global economic environments. You've got an alignment in terms of market behavior. And you just have, you know, again, that absence of trends. But I think what one can actually do is then point to a very strong contrast between those conditions and what we're seeing today. What we're seeing today is that febrile, unpredictable market environment, which I think has already led to an amplification in terms of the potential for markets to trend. Central banks have actually stepped back, you know, no longer seeing that level of government intervention in markets. So markets are able to trend more freely. 
And in addition, you've got a situation now where if you look at the major global trading blocks, and in terms of where they stand in the economic cycle, they're all at slightly different positions in the economic cycle. For instance, with the US, probably, conceivably, again, we're not economists, but at the end of its kind of tightening cycle. Meanwhile, of course, you've got China actually easing quite aggressively, Japan gradually getting out of its yield control policy, but has yet to actually increase short-term rates. So in that situation where you've got divergent economic conditions and divergence responses from central banks, again, that just opens up a wealth of opportunities for an unbiased, agnostic trend-following program. Makes sense. We've covered so much. Thank you very much, Anthony. You've obviously got such a vast experience in this space. As I mentioned at the start, you co-founded Aspect Capital more than 25 years ago now. So you've seen this dramatic evolution in the industry over that period. And we've spoken a bit about the present day, the vast amount of data that's now on offer, the compute power, the availability of models, the sophistication of some of those models that are now more widely available to others. My natural assumption based on all of that would be that the barriers to entry for some of this work has got lower and that others can enter this field and deploy some of these models. And that could potentially erode alpha opportunities for you or create more crowdedness in these markets for you, particularly now that we've gone through a three-year period, let's say, in the recent past where these strategies have worked very well. What's your view on that? And does that concern you at all? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting area. I think that the barriers to entry to building a straightforward, rudimentary, say, trend-following approach, not necessarily just trend-following. So it could be trying to capitalise on other effects I've mentioned. It could be relative value. It could yes. be some of those motivating factors. The barriers to entry to build a rudimentary model have never been lower. I mentioned, the, if you like, the four main dimensions. You need the data, you need the models themselves, you need the processing power, you need access to the range of markets. So if, if you look at it through those four lenses, you yeah. say, well, actually data, you can just download that off the web. The models, again, you can just find any number of different models to exploit trend-following characteristics or carry or sentiment or cross-sectional momentum. Yes. You can download the code off the web, processing power readily available, and access to the range of markets there. So look at it through those four lenses, the barriers to entry never been lower. On the other hand, I think the barriers to entry to building a robust institutional grade systematic investment manager have actually never been higher. And the reason I say that is that in terms of the conversations we're actually having with leading consultants, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, now the level of due diligence that they actually undertake, and the due diligence is split into two categories, you know, investment due diligence, IDD and ODD, operational due diligence, the levels have never been higher far, far, far more demanding than it was, I mean, five years ago, but certainly way more demanding than 25 years ago. And so the barriers to entry to actually build an institutional caliber firm, I think, actually never been higher. And that's why we're not seeing the flood of new entrants that one might expect. That is so interesting, this difference in barriers to entry, that they've fallen so much for the portfolio managers managing the models, let's say, but that they've risen so much, arguably, in terms of attracting institutional capital. A lot of this speaks to your comments at the beginning about your philosophy around founding Aspect Capital and the fact that you were striving to achieve an institutional caliber organization. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So it sounds like the end investors are ultimately, they're performing more rigorous due diligence on you and on exactly. others before they invest. Exactly. Yeah. Lead time is actually significantly longer than it was five years ago or 10 years ago. I think probably three main reasons for that. I mean, the first is that 
institutional investors have just developed a far greater understanding of the space than they had, say, 25 years ago. In addition, our models have become significantly more complex than they have a fiduciary responsibility to their end investors to actually understand the programs in detail. So there's yeah. a huge amount of due diligence that needs to be done to develop that understanding. I think the second element is actually dispersion and performance, that I think some you know, observers might actually think that all trend followers are the same or that there is quite a homogeneous set. But actually, if you look, for instance, during a year like last year, 2022, or you look at a period such as the GFC 2008, there was actually strong dispersion of returns amongst the leading managers. So, of course, institutional investors, they want to understand what's driving that range of performance. You know, Is it potentially a bias in the position function? Is it the frequency weighting? Is it the allocation to markets? Is it risk control measures? So there's a lot of work that actually needs to be done there. I think the third element, and this to me is a real evolution that we've seen over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, is that institutions now want to narrow down the number of managers that they're invested with but develop deeper partnerships. So spanning right. a range of different programs and develop a closer, longer-term partnership relationship. That just simply didn't exist 20 years ago. But that due diligence, I would say that comes to almost like a level of cultural due diligence. It comes almost under operational due diligence. They want to meet as many people in the firm as possible, understand some of the questions you've been asking about, well, what yeah. is our approach to talent retention? What kind of people are we looking for? What is the culture of the organization? Because they want to develop a partnership which will last for many, many, many years. So again, that will actually drive just a more protract, a wider due diligence process. That's really interesting. I didn't know that latter point. And presumably that means that while the process is very lengthy and time intensive for you, the payoff could be richer and larger because those end investors or those allocators could then want to stay with you for a long period of time and deploy capital behind many of your strategies. That, that's exactly right. We're finding more and more investors today investing in a range of our different programs or models in customized solutions. And I think you know we talked earlier about the challenging period for trend following during that period 2009 through 2019. Actually, our ability to be able to retain investors during that period was very strong. And that's as a result of the partnerships, the long-term partnerships we've built up over many years. Very interesting. Thank you. Finally, can we come to people and culture? You mentioned that right at the beginning, that when you co-founded Aspect Capital, I think you created a culture documentation, mm -hmm. which I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into. And I'm also intrigued because you spoke about these building blocks to alpha across data, across models, across processing, and across your range of markets. But of course, people must be key to all of this. People must be the backbone to collating the data, to running the models, to analysing the models. So how important do you see people and culture to your firm? I assume very important. And can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Louise, while you were talking, I was just thinking that you asked the question earlier, then what's more important, the data or the model? Actually, a third element is the people, which is it the data, the model, or the people? And actually, it's the people trumps the data or the model. Without the people, you don't- Excellent point. You, you don't, you, <laughs> You're not going to look at the right data. You're not going to use the data in the right way. You're not processed in the right way. It's interesting you refer back to that culture document we wrote right way back in 1997. And we wrote that before we'd written the line of code, done any research. It was very much fundamental to the business and just got very much reflects you know, our drive to create a culture where people would enjoy coming into, into work. They'd thrive and create an environment where we could retain, motivate and uh, recruit the, the, the best talent we possibly could. I think some of the persistent values that I think we all share, values such as teamwork, an open approach, a collegiate approach, collaboration, integrity, mutual respect, love of a challenge. 
I'm often asked, well, you know, how do we perpetuate that culture of the firm as the firm's actually grown from just the three of us actually go back in 1997 to today? And a lot of that just comes to bringing in people who share our values. So on the one hand, obviously, what we're trying to do is create a, a very diverse team of individuals with different experiences, you know, different educations, different backgrounds. We want that diversity of thought. We think that's a strong way of generating innovation. But we do want shared values. That's, yes. you know, that to me is actually so, so, so important. And I make sure that you know, every year, two or three times a year, I'll meet the group of people who've just joined the company. We have a new joiners program where I and you know, a number of other directors and senior managers will talk to the new joiners. And at that session, I'll talk about the history of the business and talk about our culture and talk about our values. It's always difficult to capture, but something that we achieved last year, which we're very proud of, is B Corporation certification. And to me, that was a very much you know, a landmark for the business. I'm sure many of the listeners are actually familiar with B Corporation. It's the whole concept, whereas back in, say, the 1980s, and I'd say a lot of the 1990s, the focus in terms of business management was the focus was on maximizing shareholder value. That's all you need to think about. You just think about the shareholders, your job, whether you're a shareholder, your manager, your director, any role in the company, your role is to maximize shareholder value. B Corporation is very much focused on stakeholder value. And in terms mm -hmm. of, kind of stakeholders said, no, actually, shareholders, they are one constituent of the company, but they're not the only constituent. They're not even necessarily the most important constituent. As a B corporation, you actually need to be thinking about other stakeholders. You need to be thinking about all your employees, not just your shareholders. You need to be thinking about your partners, your suppliers, your investors. You need to be thinking about the local community. You need to be thinking about the environment. And that, you know, achieving that B Corporation status, that, you know, we achieved that during the course of last year. What we were proud of was it was just a very natural evolution of aspect. It just very much built on our foundations. We didn't have to turn the company upside down to achieve B Corporation yes. status. We were pretty much there already. Brilliant. Well, I think that's an excellent note to end on. So thank you so much, Anthony. This has been an absolutely fascinating, insightful and inspiring conversation, really, covering all of those building blocks to your strategies from the data to the models, to the processing, to the range of markets you're covering, to the rationale behind those alpha strategies, to how they're evolving over time, and importantly, your take on the present and the future. And I really loved hearing your comments about culture and people and the fact that they still, in a systematic process-driven hedge fund like yours, that people and that culture are still critically important. So, Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today. Eloise, it's been a great pleasure being here. Thank you very much for all the questions. I've enjoyed it enormously. Well, likewise. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to learn more about Aspect Capital, then please do take a look at their website, which will be in the show notes. Otherwise, if you have feedback or questions, then please do go to our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube.
The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JPMorgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together JPMorgan. They are not the product of JPMorgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. JP Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.